Man, I love those old hymns, how they just take you through a journey, through a story. It's great. We'll be continuing our series on Esther this morning. This morning we'll be in Esther chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 23. It's printed for you in toto in the ESV translation in your bulletin. And of course, please feel free to turn there in your own scriptures as well. Before we go to God's word, let's go to our God in prayer again and ask him to reveal himself to us. Father, you have promised that the word that goes forth from your mouth will not return to you empty. It will not return without accomplishing whatever it is you sent it out to do. And so, Lord, we claim that promise this morning. We ask that as we come that you would allow us to feast upon your word. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us to know and to understand and to apply your word so that we would not be the same because of our encounter with the scriptures this morning. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the way we're going to do this is a large chunk of narrative is we're actually going to just kind of look at it one bite at a time, so to speak. And so to get us into the view of this text and where we're going with this whole Esther series, um, there's this website out there. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may not have heard of it. I don't know. It's, you know, we'll just see. It's called Facebook. Has anybody heard of Facebook out there? Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. So Facebook is this absolutely free service that you are in absolutely no way compelled to use, and yet millions of people do. And whenever Facebook makes changes, all these people really complain about it. Anybody ever gotten upset at Facebook changes, right? Well, during the most recent transmutation of Facebook, we'll call it, there was just all sorts of vitriol about what's going on with Facebook and what they're doing. And it was just really funny because, you know, again, it's a free service, y'all, and no one's making you use it, and it's not... And there was this really poignant picture that someone put on Facebook, and I want to share with you that really kind of summed up the attitude of what's going on. We go ahead and pull that up if you have it. Okay, notice this. We got Facebook and you. We got two pigs. Can you read what the pigs are saying to each other? One says, wow, isn't it great? We have to pay nothing for the barn. And the other one says, yeah, and even the food is free. And then the fine print under that says, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. You're the product being sold. Because you know how Facebook makes money, right? You give it all this voluntary information and it sells it, which is why if you're on Facebook, you get more junk mail, by the way. So anyway, you're the product. You're not the consumer. And that is the exact attitude I want you to understand. That is what empire has towards its people, what Facebook has towards us. Empire looks at its subjects and says products you are mine to consume so i want to remember where we are let's review esther real quick so you know what i'm talking about in case you missed last week okay remember our esther theme our esther poster we throw up our esther poster here to remind you where we are esther is about living faithfully in an empire an empire that wants everyone to be the same an empire that wants you to assimilate an empire that says well religious differences especially the ones that make universal claims, religious differences like that, those are the ones that are dangerous to the empire. And so what I'm trying to help us understand here through the book of Esther, what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand is that we live in an empire just as much. 
Now, I'm not talking about the Constitution. I am not talking about the Founding Fathers. I am talking about the culture of America, this weird mixture of consumerism and politics and the the cult of self-affirmation and self-justification comes together to form what really acts like an empire in many ways. And that this empire wants us to assimilate, to become the same, to become one. We talked last week for the sci-fi geeks out there, this is the Borg, that enemy in Star Trek that just takes over everything and says resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And what I want you to see about the book of Esther is that we are in the same situation as the people in the book of Esther. Here's what I mean. In the book of Esther, guess what? God doesn't show up. There is no direct verbal prophecy from God. No, nobody stands up and says, I am the Lord's prophet, thus says the Lord. God is silent through the whole book. Now, they have the scriptures, just like we do. They have God's faithfulness in the past and the record of that, just like we do. And they have this struggle of faithfulness in the daily life of an empire that seeks to slowly assimilate them and turn them, but yet at the same time gives them a pretty good life. The standard of living in, a, in the Persian Empire was much higher than it was in Jerusalem at the time. Things weren't bad. They weren't really suffering. It was just minor little accommodations here and there. And so Esther chapter 2 is about how these accommodations are becoming more and more to fruition and how they're going to see more and more how empire sees them as a product. So here's where we're going to go today. I want to give you a sentence we can use to understand what's happening. Dads, use this throughout the week in family worship. After you have dinner, just have everybody sit still for about 45 seconds. Go over the sentence. Ask them what they remember about the sermon. And just pray together as a family. It'll change how your family relates to each other. I highly encourage you to engage in family worship. We try to make that easy for you here. Here's what Esther is about today. The empire treats us as a product But God loves us as a family. So here's how we're going to look at that. First off, empire assumes that we're meant for consumption. Now, kids, at this point, if you would take out your bulletin, I want you to turn to the outline page. I don't know about you, but that word consumption is kind of a big, fancy word. I'm not quite sure I even understand it. But the smart adults here do. And so here's what I want you all to think about. I want you all to think about this. I think I have a picture up here of some really yummy stuff. Yeah, okay, kids, you're allowed to talk at this point. What is this? Boys and girls, what is that? Come on, give me a guess. Jelly, that's right. The best kind of jelly is homemade jelly. That's right. Well, guess what? What Esther is about is that the world that you and I live in wants to make us into jelly. That's too fancy for mom and dad. They, they, they want to hear me say consumption, but kids, empire wants to make us into jelly. So we're going to talk about that. So what's the first thing you got to do if you're going to make jelly, homemade jelly? Give me a guess, kids, boys and girls. What's the first thing? What'd you say? You got to get the fruit. That's right. You got to harvest the fruit. And that's the first thing that happens here. If empire is going to consume us and make us into jelly, it harvests the fruit. Would you look at me at the, with me at the first four chapters of Esther, chapter 2? After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, okay, let me stop. We know him by his Greek name, Xerxes. I'm going to say Xerxes throughout the sermon because it's easier for me to say than Ahasuerus, but they're the same guy. So after the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decried against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king 
And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen, uh, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. So empire determines to do what? They're going to harvest the fruit. I think we've got a picture of that for you. They're going to go out there. They're going to find the best stuff. They're going to pick it. They're going to take it. Because that's what empire is about. Because remember, you are a product to empire. You are something to be harvested and taken. Empire is going to reap the harvest. And so here in our story, the text starts out, it's been three years since the end of chapter one. We know that from the timeline given to us in verse 16 and later on in Esther. But right now, we're three years later. And the text kind of just blandly says, well, after these things, but we know what happened from Herodotus, the historian. For the glory of empire, Xerxes put together the largest land army the world had yet seen. Quite expensive. Armies run on their stomachs, as Napoleon is famous for saying. And they had to march all the way across to go and invade Greece. They wanted to go conquer those little philosophers over there in Greece for the glory of empire. But the problem was this. And we've got a picture for you. He didn't meet philosophers. He met warriors. And if you know the story, he got whooped several times. The, the movie, I'm not recommending it. It's a comic book. It's like got one little percentage of historical accuracy. But the movie 300 that came out about five, six years ago is the first part of the Persian Wars that happens to this. That movie happens between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Xerxes goes over there, the famous last stand of the supposed 300 Spartans. It was actually a little more than that. Then you had the rest of the war that took over a couple years. He got whooped. And he went home. His credibility is gone. Treasury is completely depleted. Persia is a superpower in name only. And so all the might of this Persian empire, this once great empire, the, the shining pearl of the world that everybody looked up to because of its policies is now bankrupt, living on a name only, and it couldn't conquer Greece. And so what does it do? It takes all of its energy into conquering its women. Verse 3 tells us they were gathered they were drafted, actually, into the empire's service for Xerxes' pleasure. I mean, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. There was not a choice here. They launched the Bachelorette Persia edition, except you didn't get to try out. You were drafted for it. and You had no choice because you're a product to be harvested. And it wasn't just the women. We've seen this word a couple times, eunuchs. The Persian Empire loved to use eunuchs as lower-level administrators all across the empire. And Herodotus tells us that Xerxes harvested 500 young men a year from their families. There's children present. Uh, they were physically altered to become eunuchs. And they gave their life to serve the empire. You know, in an ancient Near East culture like this, and even in some Near East cultures today, your value as a person... Your significance, the reason you were on earth was to have a family, was to have descendants, was to have your name go on, your family line continue. You found significance and glory and purpose in having children who had children who had children. Here, 
by forcing women to be removed from that process, by forcing men to be removed from that process and serve the empire. Empire's telling them, no, 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 no. You get your meaning and purpose from serving me, not from having children. And just in case you don't get that, I'm just going to take that off the table for you because now I own you and you are mine. Children are a burden taking away from empire. And so we're going to have you focus not on kids, but on serving us. You know, I wonder how often we are tempted by this empire of economics and accomplishment as your self-worth to give up on our families and to put our career first and foremost, even to the detriment of our families. How many of us, if we look in the mirror, would have to say that I'm a eunuch for my career? See, the empires for Esther and for us may be different, but they're not so very different. Empire wants to harvest us for its consumption. Empire wants to make us into jelly. So it picks the fruit, it harvests the fruit. So if you got the fruit, kids, boys and girls, it's your turn again. What's next? After we pick the fruit, how do we make it into jelly? What do we got to do? You can, you're, you're allowed to talk. Go ahead. Make the preserves. That's right. I'll give you a hint, by the way, where I'm going is, is pretty right here for you, kids. You got to make the preserves. You got to take, take the fruit and you got to, you, you, what, what do you do? I think we have a picture of this process for you. What you do, you take the fruit and you put it into a pot. You boil it up and you add some sugar and some spice and some everything nice. No, not, that's a little girl, sorry. You add some sugar and some spice and you make the, you boil it up and you make it into this goo where the individual fruit kind of just deteriorates into this assimilated goo of preserves and that's exactly what happens to these girls next look with me if you would starting in verse five now there was a jew in susa the citadel whose name was mordecai the son of jair the son of shimei the son of kish a benjamite who had been carried away from jerusalem among the captives carried away with jeconi king of judah whom nebuchadnezzar king of babylon had carried away he was bringing up hadassah that is esther the daughter of his uncle for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their, be- of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her 
and she was summoned by name. So Empire grabs these girls, brings them together, and assimilates them. Says, these are the girls we want. These are what we value. These are what we find important. And right before this section, we find Mordecai. We meet him. We find out Mordecai is a family from, is an upper class Jewish family carried away from Babylon. We know that because those are the people who were taken in verse 6 with that king of Judah was the first captives were the upper class people, the cultural leadership. We also know he's a third generation captive, which means he is a citizen of empire. He's never seen Jerusalem. He's never seen the temple. He knows nothing of what it means to actually see with his eyes the sacrifices of God. He doesn't know any of that stuff. All he knows is life in the empire as an exile. We see he's raising his cousin as a daughter, who in verse 7 we're told is what? She's got a beautiful figure and she's lovely to look at. In other words, in the eyes of empire, jackpot. She is in shape. And she is pretty. She's got exactly what Empire wants. What more does she need, right? Here is the next young Hollywood starlet to play alongside the much older man who could be her father, and yet they don't have a father-daughter relationship. Because, you know, you ever notice that? How the actresses keep getting younger and younger, but the, the men keep getting older and older, and they don't seem to replace the men quickly? Anyway, it's almost like Empire values young women more than anything else. So, we're told She's beautiful. She's got a nice figure. She is definitely going to be picked for the Miss Persia pageant. And that's exactly what happens. Esther is harvested. Look with me at verse 8. It says, many young women were gathered. Esther also was taken and put into custody. Those verbs in English mean what you think they do. There's nothing voluntary about this. They are gathered. We could actually retranslate this. Many young women were collected. Esther also was captured, and they were secured. This is prisoner talk. This is prisoner transport. This is not Esther being superficial and saying, ooh, may I do it? This was, oh yeah, you'll fit. She was taken. Empire asserted its power, and resistance was futile. Now, I don't want to force our worldview onto these people, so let's be very clear. They may not have thought this was so bad. For a commoner girl living outside of the capital, living outside of the palace, trying to earn a living, they probably thought they'd won the lottery. Let me get this straight. I get three squares a day, I get to live in luxury in the palace, and I get a chance to be queen? Sign me up. Where do I put the dotted line? See, we value personal freedom so much, we may not get that. But here's a question maybe get your mind around that. How many people do you know, maybe you're one of them, who spend their entire life in a job that they hate doesn't really fit them they kind of have this internal feeling they should do something else but the pay is good the security is good i get to play on the weekends at least are our worlds really so much different when empire says give your life in service to me and we act as if we don't have a choice so anyway, Esther's in the harem, and it turns out she's pretty good at the game. She gets a rose the first night, she gets a rose the second night, she keeps getting to stay, she finds favor, she gets accolades. And the question we have to ask is, is she eager, or is she in a resolved despair at her situation? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But we get a clue in verse 10. Her dad tells her, hey, keep your faith and your family secret. 
And so we have to ask, is it possible to follow a Jewish diet, a Jewish Sabbath, Jewish prayers, daily, all those things, without anyone noticing for this whole time in the harem, which could be years? She seems to have done it. You know, the text tells us she pretty much dresses like any other empire girl. She talks like an empire girl. She thinks like an empire girl. And she smells like an empire girl, as we're about to find out. Now, it's easy for us to ask those questions and to judge Esther. But I think we have to ask ourselves, do our lives stand up to those questions? Will our life survive that kind of scrutiny? Are we so obedient to God's commands? Are we so sanctified? Is our faith so obvious that no one would ever wonder what we believe? Or are we mostly just kind of like everybody else except we're here on Sunday morning and we don't cuss? You see, Esther's a real person living in a real empire which causes real struggles. Am I compromising? Am I being wise? Just like us. I mean, most American Christians, let's just own it. We are indistinguishable from our neighbors looking from the outside in terms of how we dress, what kind of houses we live in, what we do for a living, where we go for vacation, our entertainment choices, etc. Does that mean that we've compromised our faith? If a Christian living in a hostile land keeps their faith secret, are they abandoning the Lord? Or are they simply being prudent? These are hard questions in real life, aren't they? And notice, Scripture doesn't give you an easy answer. It just tells you what's going on. It's almost as if you have to pray to the Lord and ask for wisdom. And it's almost as if he doesn't actually verbally answer that for them or for us. Is it possible that Mordecai is being wise here, knowing how empire works, or is he simply lacking faith? And how easy is it for us to tell the difference in our own life? See, whether or not they compromised, the real question is this. Was God still able to use them to bring about his purposes? And is he still able to use you when you struggle and in your lack of faith? Boys and girls, I want to go back to our picture of the boiling fruit. What they do here, like I said, they take, when you put the fruit in there, you apply the heat, the, the, the individual fruit kind of breaks down and it becomes this goo and they add the sugar and they add the spice. And that's exactly what happens to these girls. I want you to have this picture in your mind and think about what the text said here. It said that they are marinated in oil for six months. And then they are cooked in spices for six months. They really did. They had this great, after they, they would keep them in vats of oil. Some historical documents say they rubbed oil on them continuously for six months. Others say they sat in oil. And then they had what's called a fumigation toga. It would look rather like a robe. And they had um, a, a, a great, think of a barbecue pit. And they had the fire under it with the spices and stuff coming up. And the girls would have to stand over it. Sometimes they gave them a stool, sometimes they didn't. And they would stand over it, and their head would be over it too. And they're in this fumigation toga thing for six months. So they very much were being cooked. 
and change from who they were into what empire wanted them to be. You've got to make sure you smell nice and look nice. I mean, I know, boys and girls, sometimes uh, mom takes a little long to get ready to come to church. I know. And dad gets irritated, and then they fight in the car, and they get all together in the, in the parking lot and say, don't tell your Sunday school teacher. I know. It happens. So can you imagine if mom takes a full year to get ready? That's what these girls were going through. Can you believe that? You see, these girls are assimilated here. They're, they are completely turned into what empire desires. But that's what it takes to climb the ladder at the office you know, and have a successful career, so they're, they're willing to do it. And so what comes next? The fruit's been picked. The preserves have been cooked. What's next? Boys and girls, what do we do next? Eat it. So it says... There's a person after my own heart. That's right. Next picture. We eat it. Oh, man, I'm wanting some biscuits right now. Yeah. You enjoy the jam. Look with me at verse 15 through 18. <clears throat> when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Terabith, in the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So it's time for empire to consume. It's been harvested. It's been prepared. It's time to be consumed. Esther's turn comes and we see she is exactly what empire wants. At the end of verse 15, we're told she is so good looking that everyone who sees her likes her and helps her. That's how empire works. Then and now, good looking people get stuff. I'm sorry, Martin Luther King Jr., your, your dream is dead. Your children are not judged by the content of their character in America, but they are judged by the beauty of their skin. How pretty you are will get you ahead in this life. Now, some of you might be a little defensive at this point. Those of you who are good-looking, you don't get this because you just think this is how everything works. You think everybody gets treated as good as you do. Trust me, I know if you are not good looking and you need help with something, people look with you like you're Gollum. And you're, can I have the precious? It's like, ah, go away. You don't get nothing. Gollum gets nothing. The good looking people get everything. But here's the real ugly part, actually, in the text. Verse 16. It slows down. Starts getting all these details to make you slow down and see the significance, like a date stamp almost. Esther leaves the harem of virgins, has her night with the king, and goes to the harem for concubines, not virgins. And I know many of you want me to make it go away, especially if you insist on reading Esther and most of the Old Testament as examples for us to follow. This is a tricky one. But this was not a society of women's rights. The, the, the ancient Near East, nor can I say it without being, getting in trouble, the current Near East is not particularly a society of women's rights. 
this was basically a very nice, a very pampered, and a very legal rape. But see, there's a deeper issue here. The yuck factor is meant to make us ask some questions of this text like this. Why was she forced into this night? Because she was taken into the harem. Why was she taken to the harem? Because she was in Susa. Why was she in Susa? Because her grandparents didn't return to Jerusalem 50 years earlier when they could have. But why would they needed to return in the first place? Because they were in exile. And why was there an exile? Because their grandparents sinned against God, broke his covenant, and brought about the promised judgment. He told them, you can go all the way back and look at Exodus. He tells them, if you break this covenant, I will bring in a bigger nation, they will whip you and they will carry you away. You see, the sin and disobedience of God's people brings God's judgment. And very often, it doesn't come on us. It comes on our kids and grandkids. Now, dear flock, compared to many places in the world, we've got it great here. I don't want to be melodramatic. But at the same time, we have to recognize we are living in probably the most hostile time in American history for Christians. This administration is one of the most openly anti-Christian administrations we've had in a very long time. Things that we thought a decade ago would just be unheard of are becoming more and more commonplace. They're becoming more and more mainstream. Why do we have to deal with same-sex marriage? Why are our children going to grow up in a country where that's the norm? Why do we have to deal with the religious discrimination that comes alongside of our stance with saying that's not what the Bible says is best? Because we are under the judgment of God. Because of the shedding of innocent blood of 55 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. And God is very clear in the Bible that the land soaks up innocent blood like that and demands judgment. And that whole culture of death came about. Why? Because our culture drifted from biblical norms. Because our grandfathers in the church, not out in the culture, our grandfathers in the church in the early 20th century, just wholesale abandoned the gospel for a humanistic social gospel thing. And the gospel was lost in most churches in America. As a matter of history, you can look that up if you think I'm being melodramatic. And so now we, like Esther, are put into difficult situations because of the sins of our fathers. But here's the best part. Esther is not disqualified from God's grace because of what she did and because of what happened to her. And neither are you. Esther's choices and their consequences are not too much for God and neither are yours. See here in verse 17 and 18, much to the reader's surprise, you do not expect us to come. Xerxes loves Esther. She may well be the pawn of a pagan power. She may be swamped by a pagan culture. But God's grace doesn't stop flowing to her. She finds grace and favor. A Jew is made queen of Persia. What an amazing providence that God is working through history just like he works in our history. It's even better, maybe, for some of you, we find out that Xerxes is a Republican. Because what does he do? He throws a lavish party and praise God, he cuts taxes. See? It's the subtlety of the writer here. What he's saying, he's putting the idea in people's mind. 
when things go well for God's people, they go well for the empire. All right, so let's finish the tale. What happens? Well, kids, boys and girls, let's remember where we've been. We've picked the fruit. We've cooked it. We've eaten it. But sometimes, there's, especially homemade jelly, there's, there's stuff in the jelly you don't want, right? I think we've got a picture of this. I don't know if you can see it in there, but see those little seeds? Now, unless that's blackberry or raspberry, you don't want to eat those seeds. I don't know what those are. Don't eat them. So what do you do? You, you, you spit the seeds out. You've got to get rid of the stuff you don't like. And that's exactly what happens as we finish up this chapter in Esther. Would you look with me at verse 19 through 23? Now, when these virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so we see here, empire starts to make distinctions among its products. These two guys were harvested. They were prepared to be eunuchs. They were serving as eunuchs. They were doing their job, and somehow they get mad at Xerxes. The Hebrew literally says they want to choke him. It says they want to stretch out their hands to him. I don't know what he did. Maybe it was making him eunuchs in the first place. Who knows? But Mordecai, he's sitting in his office. He finds out. He has experience. He knows the way empire operates, and so he advises Esther Don't tell people who you are, but here, here's this piece of information. You tell it to the king in our name. That way they both get credit. They both rise in the esteem of the empire. And so the the empire keeps Mordecai. The empire keeps Esther. But these two guys are spit out. They're killed. They're done away with. Empire has no use for them because people are meant for consumption and empire could just get rid of them. But the good news is empire may think that people are meant for consumption, but God created us for adoption boys and girls what that means is that god doesn't want us to be jelly god wants us to sit on his lap the sins of their fathers and grandfathers had left esther in a position to be taken into the harem to be an object for empire's consumption but god was there blessing her with favor putting her in a position to do his will loving her in spite of her situation and so too dear flock as we live in a more and more hostile culture, as it will cost us more and more to be faithful, we may be reaping the judgment our grandfathers have earned, but God is with us and he will care for his people. More importantly, God has a much better way to treat his people, his bride, than empire does. And we'll end with this. Look at this. Empire and Xerxes said to his, to his future bride, you be good looking, you be young, You be unmarried, you become my property, cut off all your family relations, suffer pain and boredom to be be made good enough for me. And then if you can perform well enough on our one encounter to please me, I will put my love on you. Xerxes pretty much does nothing, and the bride has to do everything to earn her position. But Christ in the gospel calls to his bride and says, recognize that you are broken 
recognize that you need help, that you can't do it anymore. See your ugly, see your evil, see your sin before your creator, and in faith, cry out for help. And then Christ says, I will suffer for you. I will die the death your sin and evil deserves. And then to make you more beautiful than you can imagine, I will live a perfect life and I will give that perfection to you. And so when God sees you, he sees my perfection, not your failure. And I will love you. Not just on our one encounter, but I will love you for eternity because I will make you part of my family. Christ does everything for his bride. You see, you need to remember that because the empire tempts Christians like us to despair, to have hopelessness about the future, or it tempts us just to give up and assimilate. Why not? But the cure for us is to focus on our wedding night with our Redeemer, our great feast that we live in the light of eternity, the festival that God is bringing about for his people. You see, when we focus on Christ and the great wedding feast coming for us, empire has nothing to tempt us with. And we have nothing to fear from empire because we know where we're going. Oh, the bride feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and new earth is the ultimate expression of favor where we will bask in the love of our groom forever. That is what awaiting is awaiting God's people. So yes, empire may demand your money. Empire may demand your blood. It's happening across the world. It may happen in America. But focus on where God is taking you and it will deliver you from despair and from assimilation. I want to meditate on this as we close the sermon today. This thought from a fellow pastor. He says this. When our eyes are set on our heavenly bridegroom, we will see through the empty charade of the empire. When our hearts are comforted by the certain knowledge of God's love for us in the gospel, we will be insulated from the temptation to despair. It may be scary. It may look like your culture is going away. You never thought it would. But God is in control. And don't despair. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this book written so many years ago, thousands of years ago, is so applicable to us right now. Lord, we see that Evil doesn't change. It wants to consume and corrupt your people. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would keep us incorruptible. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from hopelessness and from being assimilated into the empire's jelly. Instead, Lord, would you make us strong, firm, and steadfast for truth? Would you purify your people through the coming persecution? We thank you for Esther. We thank you for the hope that this story has. And Lord, we ask that you would show us your gospel through this book. We pray, Lord, that even now you would show us our sin, show us our need of redemption in Jesus Christ, and that you would do your work of drawing people before you. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond to God's word together.